1: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, I'm Meg Rosenberg, and welcome to New Books in Astronomy. Thanks for joining us today. I just had a great conversation with Lawrence Lipkin, and we discussed his new book, What Galileo Saw, Imagining the Scientific Revolution. This book was published by the Cornell University Press and it came out just last month in October of 2014. In it, Dr. Lipkin takes a broad look at the role of imagination in the 17th century developments that we've come to describe as the scientific revolution, and he challenges readers to think critically about the many competing narratives that have been introduced to make sense of what happened during this period. We chat about the notion of genius in the history of science, what was going on in natural history and poetry during this time, and of course, what Galileo saw through his telescope and what it means to see the world and, in seeing, change it. And with that, I'll turn it over to our conversation. I'm here today with Dr. Lawrence Lipking to discuss his new book, What Galileo Saw, Imagining the Scientific Revolution. Dr. Lipking is the Chester D. Tripp Professor of Humanities Emeritus at Northwestern University, and he is the author of several books on 18th century literature, poetry, and romanticism. His latest research centers on the connection between science and the imagination and what role this interaction has played in the past throughout the scientific revolution. And I'm so excited to talk to him today about his new book. So welcome to New Books in Astronomy, Dr. Lifking, and thank you so much for making the time to join me today. Thank you. Uh, maybe you could start off our conversation by saying a little bit about yourself. What drew you to the study of literature?
0: Yes. I've, I've, Well, I've been involved with literature from the beginning of my life, but also uh, I've had an interest in science for a very long time. And in fact, uh, when I was... Uh, in college, I thought about becoming a physicist. I was encouraged to do so by my teachers at the time on the grounds that uh, in, in English literature, there was no room for Jews, whereas in physics, one could uh, freely uh, admit, the, uh, you know, admit to that. Uh, that changed, fortunately, during my lifetime, and I decided that I would give in to my passion, which was literature, and have done that through most of my life.
1: But, in this latest book you you have returned to science somewhat, and you focus on the role of imagination in the scientific revolution. Um, I guess i 'd like to ask you how did you come to write this particular book
0: yes well it 's a good question, and there 's always many different answers to it. I mean I could go way back to when I was a graduate student at cornell and uh, A girl I was going with wanted to hear Erwin Panofsky talk at Wells College, which is a drive. She uh, she had a a car, so that was possible. And uh, during the uh, uh, aftermath of the talk, during the reception, there were very few people there, and I was able to have half an hour conversation with the great man, who had recently published a book called uh, Little Book uh, called Galileo as a Critic of the Arts. And uh, I couldn't say that much stems from that conversation. I realized that one could be a literary scholar and actually say something interesting and accurate about science at the same time. And I've had many such conversations uh, over my lifetime. I mean, many of my friends have been scientists, and I've never observed that uh, that divide between opposite ends of the campus, I've always tried to bridge it, and I've belonged uh, at, at Northwestern to the Science and Human Culture program, uh, which has many you know interesting bridges. Uh, so it makes sense another Another thing I should say probably about drawing me to this book is i'm i'm conscious I've been conscious for a long time that there's, there is no acceptable master narrative in the history of science these days. That is to say, there are many different ways of imagining it. The most sensational example is the most popular introduction to the scientific revolution, which begins with the sentence, there is no such thing as the scientific revolution, and this is a book about it. <laughs> that tells you uh, of uh, doubts and uncertainties, And uh, I think that's true right up to the present moment, Uh, maybe more at the present moment than ever. Uh, uh, People don't have grand theories, they're very suspicious of them, and there seem many different ways of thinking about the scientific revolution. And one thing I wanted to do was to probe those questions of master narratives and stories. I do believe that the scientific revolution consists of stories as well as discoveries. I wanted to probe that and see what kind of sense I could make of it uh, and maybe maybe add something in my own way by, by bridging, again, uh, the different fields of science and imagination.
1: So the title of the book itself, uh, and you mentioned this a little bit in the preface, uh, you point out that every word in that phrase, what Galileo saw, kind of asks a little bit of a different question, depending on where you put the emphasis. Uh, So why, uh, why are those different questions interesting to you?
0: Uh, the question's interesting because the, the fields that have been divided and tend to be divided in scholarship are not so divided in practice. I mean, what, what I love most as a scholar is getting into the minds of, uh, of thinkers or or writers of the past. It's such a pleasure. To, you first don't understand things. Uh, uh, Tom Coon used to say that... Uh, uh, the essential thing uh, for a historian of science was was disca- discovering the mistakes of great thinkers of the past and then trying to figure out how they made those mistakes. You know, getting into the mind until you realize that it was inevitable <laughs> that, it, that Aristotle would think wrongly about some things, uh, that that Galileo and Kepler would think wrongly about some things, that Newton would too. To understand them is partly to understand the logic of, of their times, which is not the same as our logic, and part of the pleasure is, is forcing yourself into a wonderful mind that does not think the way you do and does not think the way that modern people think.
1: Mm -hmm. So you mentioned, uh, again, right up front and what we've been talking about these competing stories that are told now about how the scientific revolution came about or even what it was. Uh, How does imagination play into what happened then and how we think about it now?
0: Yes, well, one one thought about science has been uh, consistently that it's the opposite of imagination. And this stems back to the scientific revolution itself. There are attacks on imagination. There's a wonderful attack by Pascal, who thinks that imagination is the source of all the troubles in the world because people confuse uh, the, out, the outer trappings of things with the inner sense of things. And uh, that that goes on. And one way of telling the story, a very popular way of telling the story, has been that the scientific revolution is an attack on imagination or a discarding of imagination so that only hard facts and experiments are allowed. Now, if you actually look at thinkers like uh, Galileo and Kepler and Descartes, and I can go on, they're wildly imaginative, so there's, there's a hole in that popular story, and to some extent I'm trying to uh, fill in that hole by showing how important it was for people to imagine things. What Galileo saw, the phrase itself, is partly a response to that problem. What he saw was very specific things through his spyglass. What he saw, in a larger sense, was the transformation of the world, uh, a new solar system, new ways of looking at things, discarding the ancients and Aristotle. Uh, These are different meanings of saw, but they are different meanings, again, that bridge science and imagination.
1: So in the in the next cha- in the first chapter where you it's called introducing a revolution so you're sort of tackling this head on uh, you mentioned a few different ways that we've described it in the past um, you know as a an attack on superstition as you just said or an imagination or an enthusiasm for seeing systems as machines or maybe a turn towards mathematics uh, and I guess uh, are any of these interpretations more true in any sense than the others or are they useful in some way. Other than providing the true story?
0: Well, they're all, you know, they all make uh, some kind of sense, Uh, although each of them has uh, a little poison in it Uh, that is, the, the disenchantment of nature. Uh, which I start with, which the, the phrase made popular by Max Weber, uh, that that notion that what happened in the scientific revolution was to take the mystery and magic out of nature, to stop thinking of nature as a a, a being, something pers- uh, you know uh, personal, almost uh, a goddess in, in effect. Uh, and disenchanting nature meant that you no longer attributed purposes to things. You no longer thought that there were uh, intelligences guiding the the movements of the planets. You no longer thought that each tree had a little god or goddess in it. And uh, that that's very basic to uh, ways of thinking about the scientific revolution. And you know, there's there's much truth to the way in which uh personalizing nature uh stopped and yielded to experiments but the, there's also a limitation to it the uh the notion that nature is purposeful and interesting is is still present and and even the goddess of nature uh, who's now become Gaia uh, uh, is still a living force in scientific thought. I mean, when we think about the what's been happening to our planet, uh, we can't help uh, thinking of the planet as having, if not a personality, um, a, a an organic being. Uh, so that uh... even that even that seemingly innocent notion that is that nature needed to be disenchanted even that is To some extent, uh, not quite true. And when you think of uh, uh, the mechanization of nature and the uh, mathematization of nature as other ways of describing what happened, each of them uh, is true in some ways and and not so true in others. I mean, is the universe to be understood only mathematically? Is the world to be... Are our bodies to be thought of as machines? Uh, if so, it would be very easy to discard the notion that we have such things as consciousness. These are living arguments. These are not settled. Uh, the idea that a human being is a machine is still opposed by many people including me. Uh, it did not carry all before it. And it needs to be complemented by uh, an interest in in um, uh, imaginative ways of thinking.
1: Okay, thank you. What's... Uh interesting about the the next chapter is we dive right into Galileo. But you begin with this fable of sound, and it's about a man who wants to know how the cicada makes its sound. Uh, Would you mind maybe giving us a brief summary of it and talk about its significance to Galileo?
0: Yes. uh, It's a polemical argument. Galileo is a wonderful polemicist, and he was using this against an antagonist who thought he knew how what, how comets worked, what was responsible for comets. That was much discussed at the time and wasn't understood at all. And uh, there were sensational comets and people tried to explain them. Anyway, Galileo was trying to attack the notion of certainty in his opponent. And he started with a, a parable uh, uh, about a, a, an innocent man who became fascinated by, first of all, by birdsong, And how did birds produce those songs and then heard more and more sounds and and you know, shepherd blowing into a into a pipe. He did. Uh, the, this person doesn't even understand what a pipe is at this point, and he goes around the world. How does how does a temple door make sounds when it's opened, and what happens when uh, uh, a tympanum is, uh, is put between the teeth to make sounds? And finally, comes to at the end after after exploring all these questions, he comes to a cicada a cic- or a cicada. And doesn't understand how it's how it works. It doesn't seem to make sounds, even the way that uh, crickets do, through its uh, uh, through rubbing its feet and so on. So he keeps probing it and probing it, and then at last he decides it must be the shields on its chest somehow, and he puts a needle in and he kills it. And then he decides. Uh, maybe there's uh, he'll never know the answer to some things maybe you have to kill things finally to try to get at the opposite and maybe God uh, could produce a hundred other ways of producing sounds that we'll never know and that's uh, uh, it's it's humble and modest from Galileo's point of view but it's also an attack on his opponent who thinks he can kill everything who thinks he can give final explanations so it, in one way, it's uh, it's praise of curiosity and probing. Uh, then uh, it gets him into trouble. At the same time, I mean, my argument, my argument is that uh, a very crucial moment in the history of science was when Galileo was interviewed by the Pope, who had been his friend, the new Pope. Who had praised Galileo in the past, and they, and the Pope loved the the fable of sound because it illustrated his favorite point, which is that God could produce uh, the world in any number of different ways, and we could never fathom completely how he did things and galileo uh, and and he he, he told this to Galileo there was a long silence, and that silence was taken for acquiescence but I think it covered a colossal misunderstanding at the heart of uh, Galileo's troubles. Galileo probably thought this meant permission to explore as much as he could the different ways of producing things, the different ways of producing sound, most of all the different ways of producing the universe. Uh, the Pope presumably thought differently. He thought that it meant that the church had a right to, um, Uh, propounds the right way of thinking of things, and that uh, God himself uh, had many more possibilities than uh, any scientist could ever uh, hope to fathom. And uh, there was the the beginning, I think, of the rift that broke apart not only Galileo and the Church, but uh, for a very long time, and one could argue even right up to the present, the rift between believers and scientists.
1: Hmm. One of the uh, points you make a little later in this chapter um, that particularly struck me is about the difference between the etchings of the moon that are ultimately printed in the Starry Messenger and the drawings that Galileo made for himself that were not published. And you make the case that the etchings are meant to be more of a map than a likeness. And I wonder, could you elaborate on that? And I guess, what does it mean as you say, to claim the right to tamper with the evidence of the eye—that was particularly yes. interesting to me.
0: <laughs> yes, well, it's very, it's very peculiar, and in fact, lately you may have uh, known that there is a tremendous scandal about a forgery. People have been fascinated because, in a matter of months. Galileo seems to have reconceived his pictures of the moon, uh, and uh, there's there's been interest in a missing link, and somebody discovered the missing link, a book with uh, uh, drawings in it that resembled the later etchings uh, and It turned out uh, that a, uh, a tremendous uh, swindler and con artist named uh, Massimo de Caro, uh, a Neapolitan uh, who'd written on Galileo and felt unappreciated had managed to Make a wonderful forgery, and it's been there uh, a lot of, a lot of great historians of science with egg on their face about that one. <laughs> uh, but uh, fortunately, I never quite fell for it, so I had to revise footnotes, but never my text. I'd have to I'd say. But the uh, uh, the difference between the two the two uh, is is uh, uh, sort of extraordinary, and and particularly in the, the great crater. That dominates the etchings, uh, like a, a navel in the moon, as I as I say, and uh, I think it's clear that it's there because Galileo wanted to show something he deeply believed. That is, he knew, even though it might not be completely confirmed by the best uh, uh, evidence he could find at the time. He he, he knew that the moon was. Like the Earth, it was three-dimensional. It had mountains and valleys and shadows. And uh, the crater was a good way to show, in a three-dimensional way, uh, the uh, the irregular surface of the Moon. And I, th- I think he did, uh, uh, let us say, exaggerate the evidence. I don't, I don't want to say he completely faked it. There are, after all, craters on the Moon. But he exaggerated them. He forced the reader to see what he wanted the reader to see. And uh, it takes imagination to do that, even though uh, uh, one might have doubts about it as a scientist.
1: So at the end of this chapter, you actually tell a little fable yourself um, about a man who was born with amazing insight and an extraordinary curiosity. And he makes discoveries about the universe and is ultimately punished by his neighbors for unsettling them. So I, I thought that was... It was a very interesting parallel to tell a little fable of your own at the end. What led you to do that?
0: Well, uh, uh, yes, I wanted to make the point, and the chapter does make the point. Each chapter, by the way, does have uh, a a through line about a different way of imagining what what happened during the scientific revolution. And and the theme of the chapter is that uh, to see things is to change them it 's probably a challenge to authority, but when you see things you 'd like to think they were neutral, like the man who tampered with the cicada right he's, he's just trying to find out how the cicada uh, makes it sounds, but he kills it, and seeing things in a vivid way and following your curiosity to the end uh, will finally destroy the world uh, the world that we complacently have taken for granted. And uh, I, I felt I needed to reinforce that with the fable at the end and talk about the way in which uh, Galileo himself uh, could not resist that uh, desire to see things through to the end, to see everything, to come to a final conclusion. And when you do that, you do, and when you do it as well as Galileo did, you change the world.
1: So in the next chapter we take a look at Kepler and you focus first on his treatment of the geometry of snowflakes which is not one of his better known contributions. So what does this work about snowflakes the six-pointed snowflake demonstrate about Kepler?
0: You know Kepler tries to understand the phenomenon which is uh, why all the snowflakes that fall on his coat have six corners. Uh, and he tries to figure it out and this is kepler he's uh... uh... kepler is also uh... he's a, i love kepler uh... he's he's a person like hook who has uh... ten ideas before breakfast and who is consumed by this curiosity and wants wants to understand everything uh, and uh this is not easy to do. in fact, you have to know about uh, molecules in fact uh, it's still uh, it 's still a little uncertain exactly how snowflakes are formed A uh, popular late theory is that uh, there are possibly microbes in them which which account for the difference of each snowflake but uh, uh, i don 't know whether that 's true or not it 's just something that people have been talking about lately uh, but kepler. Kepler wants to find a definitive answer, and he can't find it. But he throws out uh, any number of wonderful imaginative uh, thoughts. And one of them, Kepler's conjecture, which is about the best way to pack things, uh, was a problem that wasn't solved until the late 20th century, uh, when it was proved that he was right in his conjecture about, uh, about how to pack things. Uh, this is Kepler. He's, he's buzzing with ideas, and he finally, uh, uh, well, he doesn't finally, he he comes uh, upon the idea that maybe it's the spirit of the earth that uh, has molded the snowflakes into their form, and then he decides, no, that's silly. It's <laughs> not, not the way it works. And I love that in Kepler. He's always uh, uh, throwing out theories and taking them back and falsifying, because he has, as I've said, a million ideas, but he feels they have to be proved. So he's quite capable of throwing out an idea and then writing a book about it, and maybe at the end of the book concluding, No, that theory wasn't right. (laughs) Uh, He's he's certainly one of my heroes. I mean, I love that aspect of Kepler. He's so imaginative. He he finds great theories, but that doesn't mean that uh, uh, he's going to accept them without tying them down, without doing the mathematics, without being the great scientist that he is.
1: But you also say that he poses a little bit of a problem for historians of science. Uh, what, What do you mean by that?
0: Yeah, well, uh, he looks backward and forwards. It's it's a very strange business. Uh, he did, for instance, he did not believe uh, uh, much in worlds beyond the solar system. I mean, he knew there were stars, but he basically uh, was locked into the solar system. But a, a marvelous example, though, is his dis- uh, the way his mind works. Is his discovery of the elliptical org- orbits of the planets. This is uh, Kepler's first law. And nobody at the time wanted to think that the planets moved in ellipses because the circle was the perfect form, and everything was supposed to move in a circle. As a matter of fact, Galileo never accepted the elliptical orbits of the planets. Some great historians of science tried to persuade Einstein that that was because Galileo worshipped the circle. And, Gal- and Einstein said, no, that's not the way a scientist thinks. <laughs> But scientists do think that way, and Kepler also loved circles and and thought they were an image of god, so he he was reluctant to uh, uh, to uh, formulate his first law, no, He didn 't stumble upon it as were well. but but then he tried to imagine what it would be like to be on a planet guiding the planet, and he did for a long time believe there were Divine intelligences. I mean, um, a- a- angelic uh, uh, deputies who were running each planet, and he tried to imagine what it would be like to be steering a planet uh, if you were the god of the the, the god of Mars. How would you steer it? You couldn't do it with epicycles. I mean, it was impossible to to think of how that would work. And he finally was forced to come up with the elliptical theory of movement, the elliptical orbits, even against his will in a way. But that's the kind of person he was. It's also, by the way, an amazing breakthrough, partly because he's thinking of the reality of the planets as physical bodies moving in space and I mean that seems very obvious Uh, and very few earlier astronomers had thought that way I mean they they were mathematicians even Copernicus they were great mathematicians and they try to figure out the movement of the planets It was important for the calendar and so on But very few of them had the imagination to think of what it would be like to be on a physical body in space, and Kepler did that. Well, from one point of view, that's an amazing advance, and of course it's a great uh, great discovery. From another point of view, it's very strange to think about a great scientist who's picturing an intelligent uh, an, uh, an astral intelligence guiding a planet. <laughs> you could argue, "Wow, what a backward thinker," or you could argue, "Oh my God, this is a, this is an amazingly progressive person." And Kepler is both.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, okay, so in the following chapter, which is called The Poetry of the World, A Natural History of Poetics, uh, you make the point that whatever was happening in the 17th century with regards to science, it wasn't only happening in astronomy so what was going on in natural history and what does it have to do with poetry?
0: Yeah, you know, My argument natural, about natural history and again, each each chapter has a different way of thinking about the uh, what happened during the scientific revolution? Uh, my argument there is that uh, natural history really belonged to uh, poetry, or let us say to myths, or to, or let us say enchantment. To use Max, ever's term that is, you wanted to think about what flora and and fauna were and what accounted for them. Uh, earlier thinkers had almost uh, always said it has to be for human good. Uh, There has to be a human purpose in this. God wrote the world so that we could understand things, and even in very uh, things that seem very silly to us. uh, That is, uh, there are signatures uh, in the world so that uh, uh, the walnut is a symbol of the brain because brains look like walnuts, and God has planted all these things in nature. But everything in nature finally... Uh, is there to help human beings. And uh, the myths of natural history are overwhelmingly uh, rich, poetic material. Uh, and then suddenly, or not so suddenly, people begin to think, uh, maybe, maybe natural history has its own purposes. Maybe they're not entirely there. Maybe the things of the world, the flora and fauna, are not just there to uh, help human beings one reason for this by the way is, that is the discovery of the new world where the flora and the fauna uh, were, were were in many cases previously unknown and had no mythology surrounding them so you could you could look at a flower and not think that it was uh, a symbol of something else—it was a rose or a lily—and you knew all the associations with those things, but you didn't know the associations of of uh, new things just just uh, uh, later in the 18th century. For instance, the kangaroo. <laughs> there, there was no mythology of the kangaroo. You had to look at it as itself, at least for a while. Uh, and this happened in poetry too, and poetry changed as a result. Uh, it changed, first of all, I think, because of the clash between different ways of thinking about the natural world, uh, and uh, that clash was wonderful for poetry, in my view. That is, it was a, it was a clash that made poets have uh, uh, give in to the the deep uh, questioning and tension uh, in their observations. And metaphysical poetry, I argue, is not as many earlier. Um, scholars have said uh, a worship of uh, God's universe. Simply, uh, metaphysical poetry is an infinitely questioning poetry, which which looks at the challenges that the new ways of, uh, of thought have have brought to the old ways.
1: So that's interesting. You say it was a wonderful thing to happen to poetry, but it's also um has to do with this uh division between words and the things that they represent and there's also a sense that there is a moment where things lost their magic uh and this has yeah. to do with words um can you go into that yeah. a little
0: Yeah I mean I I may have to write a a book on this sometime uh yes uh there there is a notion and it's still the dominant notion of literary history that the old myths were poetry uh, and necessary to poetry and I, I and there's some again there's you know there's always some truth to that but i want to argue uh, uh, against that that in some ways uh, a new kind of poetry came to life when things lost uh, lost their magic uh Bacon uh, strongly opposed uh, the substitution of words for things. He thought that words tended to mask things; that people got lost in their verbiage and used, uh, you know, all kinds of, uh, of foolish uh, substitutions for real experiment and real thought. And uh, there is a Baconian strain to much later poetry. Uh, that tries to see things as they are, that tries to see animals, for instance, as separate creatures, not, not simply there to serve man. And that also has its uh, fascination and spirit, and I think a lot of the best poetry is alive to that notion, and certainly alive to the tension between letting ourselves be simply caught and submerged in words and being attentive to the world as it is.
1: Okay, so the next chapter focuses on Shakespeare, in particular King Lear, and what it would have meant during that time to detect whether someone is alive or dead. So what does Lear reveal about early 17th century conceptions of life and death?
0: Yes, uh yeah lear is uh of course there are many ways of looking at Lear uh, I focus particularly on that hovering moment when you can't quite tell when somebody's alive or not. That was a very important moment in uh, shakespeare 's time and and understanding what life was and what death was was uh very difficult uh, because people wanted to think of life as something very particular, a soul or a spirit. So they were interested, for instance, in death scenes of that the moment when the soul left the body that 's what that 's what life was uh, a bringing together a knitting together of the soul and the body and uh, this was uh, uh, dominant and it was dominant even for great scientists like like bacon but against that is the is the uncertainty and the fascination of uh, different ways of thinking about life. Uh, there's also a sub-theme in this chapter, I should say, which is about prolonging life. Uh, Bacon thought that the first scientist, natural philosopher he would have called him, was Orpheus. This is very strange, one would say. Why Orpheus? Well, because of Orpheus's trip to the underworld to bring Eurydice back to life. And that's the basis of science, according to Bacon. That's what science is about, is prolonging life. Uh, later think uh, today, that's a very uh, strenuous argument, because uh, many, many uh, fine scientists, uh, one I, I knew somewhat, Sherwin Newland, for instance, think that this is a terrible way to think about science, uh, death is a natural process. Bacon thought that, uh, for instance, we could uh, restore the length of life to that of the patriarchs. Why, why can't we live 800 years? Well, <laughs> this is not a good argument. Uh, uh, and it wasn't a good argument in Bacon's time, but it isn't a good argument today. Uh, and, and many physicians and uh, other scientists think that uh, maybe there's been too much emphasis on on prolonging life, you know, the last stages of life desperately and Putting all our resources into that, rather than trying to make life better. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one. That's one issue. I, I don't touch on it fully in the chapter, but it is certainly an issue in the chapter. But the further issue in the chapter is, of course, of what it means to imagine death, and in relation to life, and and what what death does to our sense of life. How. Uh, our notion that we are constantly living in the shadow of death changes uh, the way we live.
1: There's also this really interesting tension that you bring up that has to do with the stage performances in particular, um, in that the audience knows that the actor playing Cordelia, for example, isn't dead. Uh, But it's those signs, the, the breath on the glass and the feather moving, that can't occur in the performance because the character Cordelia is dead. Uh, so I had this this question: um, Does the performance aspect of the theater of the theater as this play tell us anything about how people were thinking about life and death that the words of the play, when you read them, can't tell them can't tell us themselves?
0: Yeah, they. they yes, the that moment of not knowing whether one is alive or dead it, it runs through the chapter, uh, and it has. Uh, you know, it has interesting effects on an audience, I think, and it has interesting effects on uh, the way we think not only about theater but about life because there is a no, there is a way in which life springs eternal on the stage uh, as the actors uh, come back for applause at the end. All the dead characters could leap up, and, uh, and it, it, it teaches us something about... Uh, uh, our, our own expectations. I think uh, it also uh, involves the way in which we, Im- our imaginations, uh, create the circumstances of distinguishing life and death. Uh, the wind is alive, for instance. Nature is alive uh, in Lear in the play, and uh, this is uh, to some extent we're forced into thinking that way by plays. We take the stage actions for reality, and then the illusion breaks. And uh, this is very basic, to again, to ways in which uh, our, our lives are made up of illusions with uh, the possibility of, of death always there to break our notions of what's important, of, of how we're living, of what we should be doing. And and all those things are tied up, I think, in the theatrical performance.
1: Okay, so now in Chapter 6, you introduce the dream of Descartes, the Book of Nature and the Infinite I Am. Uh, What is the dream of Descartes? It's a literal dream. (laughs) Is that right? You know, there,
0: <laughs> yeah, there were actually three that he described on a particular day, a particular evening in uh, November 10th, 1619. It was, but he was in a stove heated room in a provincial town, and uh, he had dreams. And he wrote them down in a notebook. I won't go into the problems of the notebook, but there are some problems. But uh, he thought his life had been transformed by those dreams. He understood what he'd been born to do in those dreams, uh, which was to make a complete book of nature. And that's one way of describing Descartes' career. Uh, but later, when he became more philosophical, he, he talked about the same evening as discovering a logical process of thought, most famous for the, uh, I think, therefore I am, uh, uh, which would lead him to all his uh, uh, later work. So uh, it's again, it, it's a wonderful test case of the of imagination versus, let us say, uh, reason or mechanisms. In the case of Descartes, uh, you know, uh, the the human machine and the world as a machine. Uh, uh, these are two wonderfully, drastically different ways of thinking about how discoveries get made and uh, I think it runs through Descartes' uh, work as a whole I mean his life work his life work was not as a philosopher it was really replacing Aristotle as a as the book to be taught to school children uh, by giving a version of the world as making complete sense trying to think of how you could explain everything, the theory of everything, which is still so powerful for scientists like uh, Steven Weinberg, for instance, and is one of the things that drives science—the attempt to understand everything—and that's behind Descartes. And then the the interpenetration of imagination, and that partly that means even thinking of things in terms of pictures. Uh, the interplay between that and and proof, the. Uh, uh, the tying down of thought, uh, that's very central to Descartes, is, is what I argue.
1: So it seems like there's really a struggle with him uh, where he is opposed to the imagination in some sense, the separation of the mind and body, but at the same time, he's highly imaginative himself. He can't help but put out images for people to latch onto. <laughs>
0: He's extraordinarily imaginative. uh, He he thinks that the universe is a planum, which is very central to his thought. That means that uh, there is no no such thing as empty space. There's no such thing as a vacuum. Uh, And uh, uh, he can prove that by seeing things, even though he feels that uh, everything important depends on uh, on seeing things with clear and distinct ideas. But that means partly seeing clear and distinct Ideas of an empty of the middle of an empty box, which is filled with matter, as he would as he would say, subtle matter. And the universe is full of subtle matter, even when you can't see it. In some ways, this is very comforting, because it means something is holding us up. The basic question of why why, we're not, why the earth is not falling through space. Um, uh, Newton gives uh, a different explanation. Newton believes that most of the of uh, the universe is a vacuum, and things are tied together by. Invisible forces at a distance, like gravity, attracting things. Uh, this is you know, it's somewhat amazing. It's, it's counterintuitive, and Descartes is much more intuitive. You no, know, there's things holding us up. Uh, the universe is full of stuff. Uh, but uh, to, do, to do that in a clear and distinct way is obviously impossible. It means seeing things in empty space.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, moving on to Chapter 7, uh, you focus on a history of error, and you make the case that there is an obsession with error that took hold in the 17th century, but also that the meaning of the word changed rather dramatically. Can you describe a little bit about what happened?
0: Yes, there there's many different criteria for error. Uh, one argument, uh, I mean, to oversimplify greatly would be that uh, Error up to the 17th century had been defined largely in terms of heresy, at least for a millennium. Uh, that is, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, little mistakes and errors. We're all prone to those, of course. And it wasn't even getting facts wrong. Uh, everybody can do that it It was going against the right doctrine, the right uh, credo, and you could get killed for that 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 was the, a fatal kind of error. It was a fatal error for instance, uh, to translate the Bible into a vernacular language because that would uh, that would allow people to make their own interpretations of the Bible, and there had to be one straight way. Uh, Dante talks about the straight way at the beginning of uh, the Divine Comedy, and to some extent, the Divine Comedy is showing human errors by straying off that straight way. And the same thing is true of Edmund Spencer and the Fairy Queen, which begins with a visit to the Cave of Error, where the Red Cross Knight defeats Error. And Error, again, is thought of as a wandering path. That's uh, etymologically true, too. Error derives from words for straying. Uh, In the 17th century, people began to think maybe heresy is not the source of error. Maybe it's human beings and their frailties, and the way our minds work that accounts for error, maybe because, for instance, uh, Thomas Brown would certainly say that for uh, for ordinary people, for vulgar and common people, uh, error means just trusting your senses and not understanding what's behind things, not taking a second look at things and understanding what motivates them. So it's it's... Fallacies in the mind and it 's not just original sin though that comes into it i mean frailty, human frailty in the sense that we 're all guilty of original sin, which might mean disobedience to God straight way it isn 't just that its it 's uh, human beings and their nature as human beings to uh, fall for literal meanings, to misinterpret things, and that's the source of error. So in a, in a way, uh, we're all deeply Im- embedded in error, even even if we're religiously straight and believe in the dogmas and don't commit any heresies. Uh, that's not what error is. And uh, one can argue that, again, a very popular way of thinking of the uh, scientific revolution, is is driving out error. And I want to complicate that story by pointing out it all depends what you mean by error.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, you also make this connection with the distribution of printed materials. And uh, I, I was very intrigued at the end of that section um, where you talk about uh, you know ideas being printed first on broadsides by more people than had access to this kind of thing before. Uh, is there any parallel... From that, with the distribution of information that we have today on the internet, for example
0: yes uh, yes, this is a it 's a delicate subject but but of course, we tend to believe things uh... that when we read them uh... we tend to believe the internet when we look at it if you just published a book by the way and see what readers say about it on the internet and blogs you, the distance between uh, accuracy and uh, impression becomes very uh... palpable to you and uh... i should say during my life i uh... i'm a reader of the new york times Uh, I've had personal knowledge of, let's say, uh, modestly 25 stories that are in the New York Times. Now, I always believe... That the stories in the New York Times are true, except when I've had personal knowledge of them. There's always something wrong. <laughs> there's always, there's always, you know, they always get uh, uh, not just the, even interpretations. They always get some of the facts wrong. You can't, you can't trust them. That, of course, is only when I have personal knowledge. I trust. I always trust. Uh, uh, other stories when i don't have personal knowledge and and I think that's still true and it's certainly it's certainly true of the internet i mean whenever you you get uh a uh, a deep knowledge of something whenever you really explore something you you realize that the popular version of it the ordinary version of it isn't uh, is not right. Uh, that's true even with quotations, I the uh, when you try to check a quotation on the internet, the popular version of it will usually outnumber the accurate version of it that you get from the text. That's just the way the world
1: works. Do mm-hmm. so you see, is that anxiety that uh, over, you know, not necessarily being able to trust everything that you read, uh, is that the same anxiety that we see in the 17th century, or are there differences between then and now?
0: well there there are certainly differences i mean the, the, uh, in the seventeenth century there is much more trust in authority and nobility uh, and uh, uh, again orthodoxy uh, and questions of trust come into it i mean this is uh, this is where i uh, I end the chapter really uh, uh, it 's a problem for us at the moment, I think, because there 's an erosion of trust uh, so many people do not believe in hard-based science now. I mean, so many Americans don't. Do you believe there's such a thing as global warming? Do you believe there's such a thing as evolution? Well, uh, in order not to believe in those things, you have to distrust uh, the scientists who have established uh, and proved uh, such theories. And uh, the lack of trust is is amazing these days I think i mean i've seen it change in my own lifetime uh, uh, it's uh, It's disturbing because uh, as Thomas Brown says and as Samuel Johnson says, even the devils have to have to have some trust and believe in truth uh in order for hell. To work the devils don 't take lies to tell lies to one another for truth is necessary to all soci- tr- societies, nor can the society of hell subsist without it uh, 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 but that 's broken down I mean to some extent we're're we're, uh, we're living partly in hell these days <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay well moving on from from hell a little bit um, so chapters eight and nine are actually. They share a title, uh, the Century of Genius so I, I was a little bit curious about why you chose to structure this part of the book that way. Why does that topic need two chapters?
0: Yeah, well, partly because the chapter was so long <laughs> it had I wrote it as one chapter of course, and, and that it it it, uh, it swelled that I had to do something with it but uh, but uh, I wanted to write about genius because uh, it 's so unpopular these days in uh, scientific, not in scientific circles so much as in the history of science, uh, people uh, have given up on ideas of genius. There's a book about Newton, for instance, by uh, uh, Patricia Farrow uh, in which he has total skepticism about any notion of genius pertaining to Newton. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I, I understand where that's coming from but I thought it had to be re-examined. Uh, uh, it's also counterintuitive to think uh, that Newton is not a genius, that uh, uh, Einstein is not a genius, that somebody else would have discovered the law of gravity if it hadn't been for Newton. Of course, that's that's true, but how long would it have taken? Uh, somebody else would have understood space-time without Einstein. Well, maybe. <laughs> uh, I, I, and I thought a, an unprejudiced uh, look at what genius means and how genius affects the history of science would would be a refreshing change from what people have lately been writing on this subject
1: so uh, uh, oh, well, what is a genius then, and what do we gain or lose by looking at the history of science as this sequence of exceptional thinkers?
0: Well, it means different things, and that of course is is part of the problem i mean to some extent, the modern notion. Uh, which is largely secular, is is a recent development, and even the word itself has changed a lot. Um, In the 17th century, it was a a dangerous uh, subject, because uh, the suggestion that human beings could aspire to be gods uh, is very disturbing. There was the great chain of being with everything in its place. And uh, remember, original sin itself began, uh, according to the Bible, uh, when uh, Eve thought and and Adam was lured into thinking that uh, maybe they could aspire to be like gods. Uh, Maybe God was hiding something from them that they needed to know, uh, the source of knowledge. So that's, that's in a way, the... um, the first sin of all, and then when you start to think that there are people who are much better than the rest of us, much smarter than the rest of us, maybe even godlike, this is deeply disturbing. And it took some time for our modern notion of genius To set in. Before that, it meant a particular kind of talent so that Copernicus could have a genius, a genius for mathematics, which he certainly had. But that doesn't mean that Copernicus was a genius different from the rest of us. Uh, And then, uh, in a way, Newton is the first uh, scientific figure. To be universally celebrated as a genius, uh, as somebody who's amazingly smart, amazingly different from the rest of us, not even intelligible, really, to the rest of us. I understand that quite well. When when I was uh, in junior high school, I had a teacher named... Mr. Sir, who was very methodical, a math teacher, he was a very good teacher, but he had no intuitive sense of math so when he asked when he posed problems, the smart Alex in the class, like me, would give the answer immediately and this outraged him. How did you get from you know point A to point uh, F without going through b c <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> go back and give your answer in a methodical way and of course, scientists you know good mathematicians don't, they they're, they're forced to do that, but they they have intuitive leaps. Anyway, I, I feel that working with Newton's mathematics, I feel is Mr. Sir's revenge on me, because Newton is constantly jumping from A to M, and I I want to ask him how How did you get there? Where's B C? Please help Please help me to understand what you're thinking. I mean, he is. He is smarter than the rest of us in in his way. I mean, he's very human and very frail in other ways. But as a mathematician, he's breathtaking. And and he makes you... Wonder whether you can understand him at all. You know whether he's whether he can be understood in, in purely human terms. Uh, I do. You know, part of me says that that's just mystification, and part of me says, well, when I read Newton, <laughs> I don't feel that he's. Uh, if I'm a human being, that there is something that isn't a human being, uh, uh, someone who isn't uh, quite a human being like me.
1: You say uh, a little later on, but you use a phrase that kind of stood out to me. uh You talk about his competitive humility <laughs> being yeah. that 's a very that's a very interesting phrase i think can you explain it
0: yes uh it it 's partly that he well he 's famous for some things he may or may not have said, of course, like any like any fabulous figure and one of them is uh uh comparing himself to uh Uh, a boy on the shore who uh, gathers pebbles uh, but uh, the great ocean of truth lies open before him that is, it's a a famously modest uh, uh, statement of all that he doesn't know and uh, this was a good legend and it's still a legend that people repeat all the time Uh, it may be that that actually comes from something that that uh, Christ says in um, Milton's uh, Paradise Regained when he uses the same phrase about pebbles on the shore to ridicule uh, human attempts to fathom things. Uh, you know, uh, Satan has offered. Uh, Satan is trying to tempt Christ through this by by um, giving him things, and of course Christ rebuffs him each time. This is the temptation of Christ. That's the plot of Paradise Regained and uh, satan offers uh to tell uh, to give jesus the power to know how everything in the world works and uh, this is the scientific uh chutzpah and arrogance that jesus rebukes by his fable so in a way uh, just in a way newton may be comparing himself to christ uh in that modest statement and and also beyond that is is the further notion Newton knows he 's worshipped already by people for knowing more about the world than anything else and and this modesty itself is very competitive uh, you know I, yes I, yes it 's true that I know more than anybody else in the world, but the great ocean of truth lies open before me. Uh, Wow, <laughs> what an insight! Is it is it modest, or is it, uh, or is it what uh, uh, is it the kind of humility that a saint might have, who's angling, or, or let's say a a person might have, who's angling for sanctity? Uh,
1: mm-hmm. And uh, not to overlook Hook, of course, uh, which I I just leapfrogged. But he, you quote him at some point, his quote saying the greatest part of invention being but a lucky hit of chance and uh, i uh, guess that's, uh, <laughs> hook, yeah. mm-hmm. that's what that's what he said at one point um what do you, what role do you see for imagination in his work in particular
0: well hook is very imaginative you know is wonderfully imaginative again uh, like kepler he has any number of ideas many of them work and some don't i mean he actually uh, Understood something about uh, the age of the Earth and fossils uh, almost a century before anybody else did, but he couldn't publish it. It was just too dangerous to say that the Earth might be, who knows, maybe millions of years old, uh, and that I mean that's one example of of a thousand uh, that he throws off all the time, but but there's also basic. Uh, Difference between him and I mean a very dramatic notion of uh, of how discoveries are made. A dramatic difference between him and Newton. There, Newton, when asked about. uh... Where how he made his discovery said by is uh, supposed to have said by always thinking unto them, <laughs> Newton would spend two years working through a problem if he had to, or even ten years just thinking about that and nothing else, and Hooke said the best inventions are but lucky hits of chance, uh, you know, they come and go like the wind every day, something else happened and and uh, the danger of that is that you don 't carry through your ideas, and that 's true largely true for hook i mean he's he's hook thought that he had invented the law of, or discovered the law of gravity and uh, uh even argued that and newton was appalled because hook didn't have the mathematics for the law of gravity he just had the intuition for it and there are two very different kinds of, of geniuses there's the human kind <laughs> like Hook, who's definitely a human being, even even though he's so brilliant, uh, and Newton who who's able to devote himself whole, wholly to something and who feels that intensive work will will get you to discoveries that nobody else has made. Uh, I mean, I love I love Hook, <laughs> uh, but he's not an otherworldly figure. He's an all too human figure. He's not even Leonardo da Vinci, though there there are several books now which have uh, about Hook, which have Leonardo in their title. One is called uh, London's Leonardo, and another is called uh, England's Leonardo. Uh, he's both an artist. Uh, and a scientist like leonardo but he doesn't have the uh, you know the the aura uh, of leonardo that sense of uh, of being uh, uh unearth uh, unearthly brilliance uh, brilliance beyond the pale
1: <laughs> so you actually uh you make you mentioned the dispute over the law of gravitation uh and you spend a little bit of time in this chapter exploring the idea of originality, which was itself not fixed at that time. So how did the Royal Society, for example, you mentioned this tension between ostensibly valuing collaboration and openness, but ultimately rewarding individual achievement?
0: Yes, that's a, that's a terrific problem uh, uh, in the mid-17th century especially. I mean, Bacon had pointed out that the discoveries are really made through collaboration by people working together and the Royal Society is founded on that and experiments for instance uh, depend upon being replicated right I mean a good experiment is some, something that everybody eventually can be able to do uh, and uh, against that is the you know the brilliant insight that makes you immortal and uh there's a tension within the Royal Society in that way. Hook was the curator of experiments for the Royal Society, and he was supposed to be a flunky, and most people at the time for a long time thought that he was basically a flunky, somebody who carried out experiments that other people had designed. Uh, eventually, he tried to break out of that role by... You know, by proving he was a genius uh, himself, and there's a tension in being a member of the royal or, or a workman in the, in the Royal Society, who's supposed to be simply helping the society, who's supposed to be conducting experiments, who's supposed to be one of the millions of foot soldiers who make science work, and there's a tension between that and wanting to have a name, wanting to uh, wanting people to admire you. Wanting to live in history, which is, uh, you know, tremendously important, not just for Hooke, but for so many others, uh, scientists and poets alike.
1: Okay, so we come to the final chapter of Revolution and Its Discontents, The Skeptical Challenge. And you kind of come back to the question that's hinted at at the beginning, was there a scientific revolution at all? And this modern debate uh, are multiple competing stories about what it was or whether it happened. So I guess my question, my final question about this chapter for you is what do we gain from skepticism about the existence of the scientific revolution?
0: Well, as, yeah. One thing uh, to be said is that skepticism is something that we were taught at by the scientific revolution, uh, and and the great skeptics deserve their voice. I mean, some of the great scientists of the. Uh, of the 17th century are are known for being skeptics. Uh, uh, Pierre Gassendi is one. Marin Mersenne's another. Uh, and you can argue that uh, you know even people like uh, uh, like Bacon or almost everybody are talked about uh, has a skeptical moment. Uh, so that uh, to some extent this discontent uh, or feeling that there's no one explanation, for instance, that there's always another way of looking at things. We go back to the fable of sound. There's always another possible explanation. To some extent, that's something we got from the scientific revolution itself. It's something at the the heart of the way that people were thinking then. And it's also something uh, uh, that we're thinking about now. And there is a term, and I talked before about the lack of of trust for authority in modern times, and there's certainly some of that. I mean, there are no grand theories now. Um, people are very uh, suspicious of anyone who tries to have uh, a single theory. I mean, the, the career of uh, uh, Thomas Kuhn is interesting in that way, uh, at, at one time, I mean, within my memory, and you know I, I used to know <laughs> within my memory the his structure of scientific revolutions was supposed to be an explanation of the way that revolutions happen, and it still is in some ways uh, but it 's hardly mentioned by people now who write about the scientific revolution the The idea that there is one way of mastering what happens. Uh, in a historical moment is is very unpopular and the, and many of the best historians of science these days are doing microhistory you know you look at one thing let let us say uh, you don't look at uh, what happened to the heavens you look at, at the way that uh, uh, telescopes work and how they were uh, invented and how they were improved and so on. And you focus on that, um, you know. Let the heavens take care of themselves. Uh, and, and I I appreciate that. I mean, most of my friends who are historians of science are doing microhistory. Uh, nothing wrong with it. You you know, it's fascinating. It's curious. You discover a lot of things. But uh, to some extent, my book is an attempt to think again about larger ways of trying to imagine what happened and and trying to imagine how that still affects the way that we think and the way that we live our lives today.
1: Well, thank you for that and for all of the responses that you gave, very thoughtful answers. Uh, To wrap up our discussion here, I just have one more question, and that's what's next for you? What are you working on and what's exciting to you?
0: Yes, I don't like to repeat myself, and this book, <laughs> this book is a sign of it. I mean, I'm doing something completely different from what I've done previously in my career. So, repeating myself is is the problem. There, there are two things uh, that I've been thinking about. Uh, uh, one of them is, again, uh, carrying the, uh, this project in the history of science forward a little bit by trying to think backwards. I, I've talked several times about ways in which uh, things that happened in the 17th century anticipate ways of thinking in the 21st century, and that this is done by looking at what happened in the 17th century with some reference to modern times. Another way of looking at these things would be to look backwards, that is to start in the 21st century, And look backwards toward the scientific revolution and and draw connections between them more explicitly than I've been able to do in what Galileo saw. That's one project. Uh, Another project I have is going back to uh, uh, poetry. And I've been appalled in teaching. I still, even though I'm retired, I still teach one or two courses Uh, every year it seems and uh, especially with graduate students I've been appalled by how few of them have a sense of the history of poetry as a whole how poets have learned from each other and grown from each other and are connected to each other so many people are period specialists who have no sense of changing times and and the continuities in poetry. And uh, uh, I expect that from undergraduates, but as I say, more and more people with PhDs in English have no notion of the history of poetry uh, as a a continuity. And uh, that's probably something that's going to frustrate me into writing a book. (laughs)
1: well thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today Uh, the book is What Galileo Saw Imagining the Scientific Revolution by Dr. Lawrence Lipkin and it really dives into the heart of what we mean by the scientific revolution and all these stories that we tell about it so thank you so much thank you you've been listening to New Books in Astronomy thanks for joining us and see you next time